0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It's good to be back on the air, and I am very much looking forward to um, this next upcoming uh, segment to uh, the book we're discussing uh, being uh, Judy Bloodgood Banders, Jack Jewett, Revolutionary Rider, and the Ride to Save Virginia in the American Revolution. From the looks of things, uh, I have seen that I've gotten close to about uh, 40 plays from the uh, introduction so far, and it's very encouraging to say the least. Why do I say that? Because more often than not, when we think of famous revolutionary writers, there's usually one person who comes to our, who often comes uh, first in our minds, and that is uh, Paul Revere. Uh, Don't get me wrong, uh, Paul Revere uh, was a, a very significant um, individual, just one of many significant individuals uh, throughout the um, American Revolutionary War. And it wasn't just so much that he um, warned uh, his fellow uh, townspeople that the British were arriving, but it's just the fact that Revere himself um, did more to help, um, to help uh, ensure that uh, his fellow townspeople were safe. In other words, you know, Paul Revere's um what do you call it perceptiveness um basically allowed um, the townspeople to assemble they it allowed the townspeople enough time to be able to store essential provisions um, to where uh they would those essential provisions would not fall into enemy hands. But at the same time, I think it's fair to say that we also need to keep in mind that uh, other other uh, figures, who may not have attained the same status as Paul Revere, also uh, have played um, vital roles, or we have come to learn in more uh, recent years have played uh, went about playing vital roles in the uh, greater cause of the uh, American Revolution itself. So, it's fair to say that based upon what I've uh, gotten result-wise from the prologue that most of you may not have even known whom uh, Mr. Jack Jewett was, and that's okay, but as we um, study about Mr. Jewett, in, not only in this um, segment, but in other segments, uh, we will uh, come to realize that his presence, being at the right place at the right time, was just as uh, significant as it had been six years earlier when Paul Revere and his band of dispatch riders went about uh, warning the greater uh, townspeople, not only of just Boston, but in um, towns and villages north and south of Boston as well as west of Boston. So dispatch riders, no matter how big or small their statuses may be, have... um, have often been uh, forgotten because, you know, yes, it's one thing to sp- to spread the news to a group of people or to a townspeople. More often than not, it, the credit has usually gone to um, a bigwig, someone whose name has been mentioned very frequently in textbooks or just in books overall in general. Um, I don't know of any other authors out there who have um, written a book on uh, Jack Jewett, But I will tell you that uh, Judy Bloodgood-Bander's novel is probably the most accurate one that I have read uh, regarding uh, Mr. Jewett. Now, if any of you all who haven't been to Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home, you would probably learn a great deal about Mr. Jewett as well. If you were to um, visit Monticello, as a matter of fact, when I go, whenever I decide to go to Monticello next, I'll make sure that I make it a priority to uh, perhaps learn something new about Jack Jewett that maybe I didn't know uh, beforehand or that maybe wasn't even mentioned in this book. But based upon um, my readings, or rather the findings that I obtained when reading this book, I truly felt uh, as though I had learned more about Jack Jewett while having read this book than I ever did previously before. So our 1st uh, leadoff question is going to be uh, the following. In what year was Jack Jewett born? Well, let me ask you this. Was he born in uh, 1754? Was he born in 1740? Or was he born in uh, 1735? The answer is choice A, 1754. So, even though his name was often associated as Jack, his real name is actually John. So, his real name is John Jewett, Jr. He was born on December seventh, 1754, in Virginia's Albemarle County. Albemarle County is located west of Richmond, in Virginia's Piedmont region, The county is home to Charlottesville, where the University of Virginia, a.k.a. UVA, is located. But let's keep in mind, when Jack Jewett was born, there was no University of Virginia. We would have to, um, we need at least another 60 years at best before um, talks about the University of Virginia um, start um, surfacing, but... Whenever you think of Albemarle County, uh, think of, yes, the University of Virginia, think of Charlottesville, think of Monticello. Also think of uh, Ashlawn uh, Highland, where uh, James Monroe's um, estate estate is. Now, Jack Jewett, what I find interesting is that Jack Jewett Jr., and we have to remember his father is John Sr., but uh, Jack Jewett Jr. was born just before hostilities broke out along colonial America's um, western frontiers. Now, what do I mean, folks, by the western frontiers? Could I be possibly talking like, you know, what we now know as present-day Ohio? Could I possibly be talking about, you know, present-day western Pennsylvania, as we know, around modern-day Pittsburgh, or around um, Monongahela? I, I could be referring to both, yes. so. Yes, it is fair to say that Jack Jewett—he's really, in a sense, born um, just shy of when uh, hostilities will break out along um, America's uh, western frontiers, and what we now know is the uh, Seven Years' or French and Indian War. Now, in the 1750s, Virginia—well, I think it's, I would say it's very fair to say that Virginia has produced its is producing its share of um, prominent men um from each from each decade. I know um like Mr. George Wythe would have been born in 1726. Uh Benjamin um Harrison IV was born that year. Uh, and um George Washington 1732. And of course um you know as the 1740s, we entered into the 1740s, Thomas Jefferson's born in 1743. Now, uh, what forefather would have been born three years before Jack Jewett, Jr.? James Madison. He was born in 1751. So there's only about a three-year age difference between uh, Jack Jewett and James Madison. However, uh, Jack Jewett uh, will be four years older than James Monroe, whom would be born in 1758. He will be a year older than John Marshall, the future one-day... Uh, John Marshall will be um, the United States uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice, whom would go on to serve in that role from 1801 to 1835. So, the 1750s, it's really fair to say that this particular decade is one that produced many uh, prominent Virginians whom would one day leave indelible marks or legacies. But that's not to say that even men like Thomas Jefferson, who was born in 1743, George Washington, 1732, George Wythe, uh, 1726, Um, yes, those uh, men will also leave uh, indelible legacies as well. Maybe it's fair to say this, in a sense, because when you look at just how big Virginia is, you know, being the largest of the 13 colonies, you know, Virginia, yes, it's one thing to hold that unique distinction, being the largest of the 13, but... um, it is fair to say that throughout virginia's existence as a colony she will always have the most to gain to have the most to gain but yet the most to lose so virginia's status as the largest colony is a uh, is of delicate importance because you know think about it to the west you have present day west virginia ohio indiana illinois all the way to the great lakes and, and as well as um parts of the Ohio Valley, with uh, Kentucky down into Tennessee, or the Tennessee Valley. So, it is a huge swath of territory, to say the least, for Virginia. Uh, what occupation did uh, Jack Jewett's father, John Jewett Sr., hold? Well, what, what kind of occupation do you think uh, the elder uh, Jewett held, being Jack's father? All right, well, the elder Jewett was a tavern keeper whom held a license to operate the Swan Ordinary." Okay, and another word for ordinary is tavern, meaning a place of lodging. And the Swan Ordinary was located in Albemarle County. Now, let's think about it, folks. You know, taverns were like the equivalent of maybe moder- of hotels, but they were referred to as taverns because you not only got a place of lodging, but you had you know two meals a day. You had your uh, breakfast and then your uh, midday fare. Taverns were a place where you know you could go to have a conversation, a political conversation, a conversation on any particular matter of uh, significant importance. Of course, when I think of taverns, not only do I think of them as you know basic means of lodging and having a fine meal. But more often than not, when I think of taverns, I tend to think of them as being the hot spots for uh, men coming together to discuss their um, opposition behind um, Britain's injustices uh, imposed upon the colonists, most notably after the French and Indian War ended. And of course, when I think of injustices, I think of the uh, Stamp Act, I think of the uh, Townshend duties, uh, the Stamp Act being from 1765, the Townshend duties from 1767, just to name a few, um, but of course I can also say uh, 1774, the Intolerable, a.k.a. Coercive Acts. Uh, I could go on with some other ones, but when I think of taverns, I, th- I think of... Um, of the time most notably of the uh, uh, post-French and Indian War uh, period when um, hostilities start to uh, increase and they increase in uh, phases. But taverns become that um, vital um, hub for where uh, men of uh, prominent status can uh, voice their um, opinions on how to uh, go about um, either improving Upon uh, the current relations with England, or in, or in worst case scenario, depending on where you're living, like most notably in Massachusetts, there's a ninety nine point nine percent likelihood that you're going to be advocating uh, separation from England. So yes, uh, Jack Jewett's dad, uh, John Jewett Senior, uh, was a tavern keeper. But I should, what I did find interesting about the Jewett family is that tavern operations were no strangers to them considering that Jack Jr.'s grandfather, Matthew Jewett, had opened a tavern dating back to 1742, uh, the year before Thomas Jefferson was born, near the present-day town of Louisa. The tavern in Louisa that, um, that Jack's grandfather, uh, Matthew Jewett, operated became known as the Cuckoo Tavern, and it turns out that Jack's father um, owned that uh, tavern as well for a period of time. Now, I will mention in another podcast down the road about why the Cuckoo Tavern got the name Cuckoo. I I can tell you this much. It has nothing to do with nuttiness. It has nothing to do with being insane. It has nothing to do with anyone being uh, mentally unstable. So I'm sure all of us could um, breathe a sigh of relief right there. I know some taverns had um, interesting names, but hey... There was a reason for why um there i will tell you this much folks there will be a good reason why this particular tavern is called the cuckoo tavern and again it will be uh, in another podcast down the road now did um jack did young jack jewett because he is a a young fellow at this time was he an only child or did he have siblings uh, the answer is choice B. He had siblings. He was one of four brothers. Uh, the family was of French Huguenot faith, whose origins to America first appeared around 1686. Well, that's about almost 80 years after the first uh, group of Englishmen came to what we now know as present-day Jamestown, Virginia. So uh, Jack Jr.'s great-grandfather, um, Jean Jewett, or Jean Jewett, Mo- moved from Rhode Island uh, to Virginia. Jewett, um, like other, the Jewett family, like other French Huguenot families, came to America seeking religious freedom. Think about this, folks. There were many who came to America during the 17th century to escape uh, religious persecution, and it wasn't confined to just England. Uh, there were other um, European nations where where certain groups of people were not welcomed because they did not practice the same faith. Of course, when I think of England, you know, it's one thing to be Protestant, but if you don't adhere to the Anglican Church and you don't adhere to the um, beliefs that the Anglican Church upholds, then are you pretty much are you allowed to have a say in um, in daily affairs? No. If you are a member of the Church of England and you are of, um, of a certain status, more like upper tier, upper class status, then not only will you be given X number of privileges, but you will be allowed to participate in the government and your voice will matter. But for, uh, for an everyday commoner, probably not. Even if he does adhere to the Church of England, he may not still be able to be entitled to certain rights. Especially if he does, if he is not of um, prominent status, so religion, as much as I hate to say this, it, is an undoing. It's an undoing of many uh, European societies. But as for the Jewits, along with other French Huguenot families, they came to America seeking religious freedom. Most notably around 1685, and the reason why this is important is because in 1685, King Louis the Fourteenth of France revoked all religious practices that had been safeguarded under the Edict of Nantes from 1598. So, true or false? Is France heavily Catholic, true or false? True. So, under the Edict of Nantes from 1598, the French government recognized that there was a small population whom, was of not, whom wasn't of the uh, Catholic faith, being the French Huguenots, under the Edict of Nantes, the French Huguenots were allowed to—they um, were allowed to freely uh, practice their faith. They were allowed to um, have um, personal liberties that had not been given to them before. Well, King Louis XIV, come comes sixteen eighty-five, wants to restore all of France to um, Catholicism. No buts, no ifs. Um, France is going to be Catholic, and if you are um, a French Huguenot faith, then sadly you're going to be up a creek. And there were um, many people, sadly, who were persecuted, all in the name because of uh, differences in religion. And what we should keep in mind is that even Paul Revere's family was impacted by the Edict of Knott's. Most people don't know this, but Paul Revere's, uh, the pronunciation of his last name was not originally R-E-V-E-R-E. It was uh, Revere or uh, Revoiré. Uh, Paul, the last name Revere is, a, is an anglicized um, version of what his original last name was. So we should keep in mind that some of our uh, Revolutionary War leaders, their ancestors were victims of... Um, unnecessary uh, brutality, and unnecessary um, treatment under this Edict of Nantes. Another man by the name of Francis Marion, many of you probably would have remembered when we discussed John Aller's The Swamp Fox, how Francis Marion saved the American Revolution. Francis Marion's ancestors came from France, and the original last name was spelled Emmerion. Marion is, is anglicized. So, Let's just be reminded, folks, that uh, when we hear of a person's last name, sometimes we, we can't always automatically assume that that last name has always stood the way um, we, would have, we would originally assume that it had been. More often than not, um, last names do get anglicized, um, but they, of, they often start out with a different uh, pronunciation. So, thank heavens the Jewits came to America and were able to obtain a better life. Now, uh, who becomes Virginia's first non-royal governor in 1776? Was it Thomas Jefferson, or was it Patrick Henry, or was it um, Edmund Pendleton? The answer is choice B, Patrick Henry. However, um, prior to July 4, 1776, and Patrick Henry's ascension to the governorship post, we should keep in mind that two colonies were out two, uh, two other colonies at the very start of 1776 did something very unique do you know what those two colonies did well their uh, people ousted uh, their royal governors and went about establishing state constitutions that was uh new hampshire and south carolina new hampshire being the northernmost colony South Carolina being the second to the southernmost of uh, colonies. Of course, Georgia was the most remote to the 13 colonies, but uh, I, I always found it interesting that New Hampshire and South Carolina were the first two colonies to oust their royal governors and went about establishing um, state constitutions because no other colony had established its own uh, constitution given that they were still under the... Um, authority of a a royal governor. Now, what Virginian went about recruiting uh, Jack Jewett to join the state's 16th Regiment? Was it uh, James Monroe? Was it um, Nathaniel Green? Or was it Thomas Jefferson? The answer is choice C, folks, uh, Thomas Jefferson. I didn't know Thomas Jefferson had uh, good recruiting skills. I mean, yes, Jefferson is a phenomenal writer. Uh, I mean, given his ability not just to write, but to be able to go about writing the Declaration of Independence, even though it required 86 revisions. But Thomas Jefferson recruited uh, Jack Jewett. Is it fair to say that, you know, Jefferson, you know, here he is living at Monticello? He knows. He probably knows the Jewitts. He probably knows that Jack's father ran ran the uh, Swan Ordinary. And maybe it's possible that even Jefferson himself may have been a guest at that tavern. So, it is fair to say that uh, connections are vital. You know, the Je- Thomas Jefferson may not be best best buddies with the Jewitts, but he knows who they are largely in part because Jack Senior runs the tavern. And so, connections, one way or another, are going to pay off. So, yes, Thomas Jefferson does recruit Jack Jewett to join the state's 16th Regiment. The recruitment itself probably took place sometime before or after 1777 had begun. What I found interesting here is that on April the 15th of 1777, Jack Jr. received 51 pounds, 51 pounds in terms of money, folks, This was somewhere just over $150 in modern-day times. Now, let's think about that, folks. That's a lot of money. And I'm sure some of us are wondering, what could you do with that kind of money? Well, if I got 51 pounds worth of money, knowing that that's close to over $150, I'm not going to go out and spend it like there's no tomorrow. But think about that kind of money that could be used for essential provisions, not just for yourself, but perhaps for a couple of other um, comrades of yours in your uh, militia group. But the money itself could also um, be used to help um, obtain other essential provisions that perhaps Jack uh, Jr.'s father, uh, the elder uh, Jewett, be able to go about selling at his tavern. Now, sadly, a tragedy did strike uh, the Jewett family on September the 11th of 1777. Jack's brother, Matthew, died in Pennsylvania at the Battle of Brandywine. Now, uh, Brandywine is just on the outskirts of Philadelphia. It's about, oh, Brandywine's not too far from uh, Chad's Ford, which is probably about 30 miles south of Philadelphia. But uh, there was... Brandywine was one of those battles that, that we you know that the Americans valiantly tried to, um, they tried to do everything there was to um, get the upper hand, but the British, at the end of the day, got the, got the upper hand and basically forced the Americans into a deep retreat. So, sadly, uh, one of those casualties being um, Jack's brother um, Matthew. Now, uh, besides, uh, you know, the elder Jewett is doing a nice job of supporting his son's war services, but he's also doing el- doing something else, too, that's of essential importance. What do you think that would be? Well, he is supplying the Continental Army with um, food, most notably beef, and other farm essential provisions. Well, other provisions could mean things like flour, um, anything that you know that soldiers need you know we have to remember soldiers can't aren't able to eat three meals a day or let alone two they might be lucky if they have you know their breakfast in the morning and the equivalent of what we would call a uh, supper in the evening you know when you have your supper in the evening in colonial times you're 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 having like a snack but basically when you're on the march <laughs> You might be lucky if you can have a snack, but you're not going to be able to sit down and have a nice meal. So, yes, the Elder Jewett is doing everything he can on his end in supplying the Continental Army, not only with meats, but with other uh, farm essential provisions. All right, now what we're going to discuss next, folks, is a little bit more about... um, We want to go into uh, talking about Virginia's capital. But I will tell you this, uh, we will probably be discussing Virginia's capital. Um, it could be possible maybe in another podcast, but what I do know is that uh, Virginia's had more than one capital in its history. Does anybody know where the first capital was? The answer is Jamestown. It would make practical sense because that was the first permanent English settlement, not just in America, but you know, in Virginia. Um, so if you don't want to have a capital in, in Jamestown, uh, then why even establish a settlement there? So Jamestown had been the uh, capital of Virginia for just around 90 years. But come 1699, something changes. Did Virginia's capital get relocated? Yes, it did. So, since 1699, where had been the home of Virginia's capital? The answer is Williamsburg. And, um, Williamsburg, uh, was, to me, was probably the much better, um, choice, um, in terms of, um, relocating the capital, to. and we can find that out why here, uh, momentarily. But, um... Williamsburg, does anybody want to know for whom Williamsburg is named in honor of? Well, Williamsburg is named in honor of English monarch William III, whom ruled um, England from 1689 to 1702. But at the same time, he reigned England with his wife, Queen Mary II, whom ruled alongside him, hence You get a college named after this couple, the College of William and Mary that was named in their honor. William and Mary would be the second oldest college in America after Harvard, up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, was first established back in 1636. So what year was uh, William and Mary founded? I mean, obviously it would have been founded during the time that... um, King William the Third and his wife Queen Mary the Second reigned over England, so I'll give you some choices. Was um, was the school found, um, founded in sixteen eighty nine? Was it uh, in sixteen ninety three or sixteen ninety seven? The answer is choice B, sixteen ninety three, and it's. Uh, I think it's a great thing that his wife was alive to have uh, seen this, because sadly, in sixteen ninety four, King William the Third's wife, uh, Queen Mary, died, and I didn't realize just how old, how young she was. She was only thirty two years old. That I mean, t- even back then, that was extremely young. But it, it, but in in today's time, it has even more implications. So. So yes. Uh, There you have it, folks. 1693, William and Mary uh, was founded. Now, prior to 1699, uh, Williamsburg had been referred to as Middle Plantation. Why would it have been referred to as Middle Plantation? Well, where Williamsburg stands, given that it had been referred to as Middle Plantation, it was called that due to being stationed on higher ground between the James and the York Rivers. Middle Plantation uh, became the first major inland settlement for the Virginia Colony. The, um, the settlement was established as a means of the colonists, or the, um, the settlers, uh, or the English people rather, I should say, wanting to seek protection from, um, from Indian attacks. There had already been um, multiple attacks in other uh, English settlements, most notably by the uh, Kiskayak uh, tribe, and Middle Plantation really was seen as a uh, palisade in terms of um, in terms of uh, a military fort that could uh, protect uh, the greater um, community from uh, further Indian attacks. And how ironic that um, Middle Plantation would be chosen as the site for the College of William and Mary. So, whenever you um, whenever you walk uh, the, around the campus of William and Mary, you know, you might as well think of Middle Plantation. Now, um, how ironic that uh, Middle Plantation during times of crises uh, would often um, be um, designed as a makeshift meeting place. We must keep in mind that Jamestown had many uh, crises. And some of these crises involved conflicts with, um, with Indian tribes, most notably of the Powhatan Confederacy. And then the Jamestown's capital at times uh, caught on fire. Well, if the House of Burgesses needs to convene and conduct um, official business, they've got to go somewhere. So they uh, chose um, Middle Plantation, which you know, served as a makeshift uh, meeting place. Now, does anybody want to know uh, what county uh, Williamsburg and Jamestown are a part of? They are a part of what's called James City County. And it turns out, folks, that James City County is the oldest county in the United States. It dates back to 1634. So this county is 388 years old just thinking, 12 years from now, <laughs> I'll be 55 years old, <laughs> but if I'm alive 12 years from now, which I would certainly hope I would be, James City County will be celebrating its uh, quadricentennial anniversary. I, sh- I meant to uh, mention earlier with uh, King William and Queen Mary, there are uh, two uh, counties in uh, Virginia, not too terribly far from where I live. Uh, one of them is a uh, King William County, which would be named in honor of King William III, and then there's a King and Queen, named after King William III and his wife, Queen Mary II. So whenever you think of those counties, uh, think of them not just uh, of William III and Mary II, but think of William and Mary, a.k.a. the College of William and Mary. Okay, now we've got even some uh, more um, relevant information, or I, rather, I should say, of uh, significant information that must be discussed because now we're going to uh, find out why uh, Williamsburg plays an important um, role uh, around the time that um, shots are first that around the time that shots are heard around the world most notably at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts. But, of course, nobody else um, well south of uh, Lexington and Concord knows exactly what has taken place on April 19th of 1775. So, what event happened in Williamsburg on April 20th of 1775, which led to unrest within the Capitol community? Think about this, folks. This is a day after the shots are heard around the world at Lexington and Concord. We don't have a breaking news alert app. <laughs> of course, that won't come for a couple of, of... That won't come for another few more centuries, but but eventually we will find out what takes place on April 19th of 1775, but it's probably going to take at least 10 days or more at best until we actually know what did happen. Hang tight for just a moment, and I'll tell you what event happened in Williamsburg on April 20th of 1775 it was an incident known as the gunpowder incident or the gunpowder affair okay so we know it has something to do with gunpowder but what is the big deal behind this gunpowder okay glad you all ask and hopefully what i can give to you all will answer those questions Prior to April 20th, 1775, many Virginians were already organizing militia units, along with obtaining guns, muskets, rifles, ammunition, gunpowder, for greater defense purposes. Long story short, back in uh, September of 1774, um, a British uh, party up in uh, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston, had... um, gotten access to the gunpowder. And by getting access to the gunpowder, it sent uh, shockwaves throughout the greater um, communities of Massachusetts to where uh, bells were ringing, uh, people were coming out uh, from their homes in droves. Um, It it was a matter of national security. So the people banded together and said that, hey, look, if we don't want this to happen again, we've got to... um, come up with our own solutions on where we're going to store whatever existing gunpowders, gunpowder supplies are. Well, um, in late 1774, Paul Revere, uh, for those of you who were with me when we did Paul Revere's ride, what did he do? He um, rode up to uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and was able to assemble a large group of um, militiamen whom... Uh, whom all successfully uh, stormed Fort William and Mary and seized the gunpowder, pretty much overran less than ten guardsmen, ten Loyalist guardsmen. That was Revere's revenge in terms of what had happened, but it was also meant to awaken the greater communities uh, elsewhere to say, hey look, if what happened in Massachusetts took place, it can happen in your neck of the woods as well. So, Virginia being the largest of the 13 colonies, I could see how uh, many are very um, worried about what would happen if in the event uh, essential provisions were not available for greater defense purposes. So, Lord Dunmore, or I should say John Murray, but he became known as Lord Dunmore. He was Virginia's uh, royal or colonial governor. Uh, He would be the last of the royal governors in Virginia. He saw the greater militia build up as as threatening, to where he went about cutting off access to all military provisions. Basically, he doesn't feel that everybody and their brother ought to be entitled to um, essential provisions. Well, let's find out uh, a little bit more, because what I just shared with you all was the basic. How about we get to middle ground here? on the night of april 20th 1775 royal navy sailors entered the williamsburg powder magazine and loaded 15 half barrels of powder onto governor dunmore's wagon it might be fair to say if governor dunmore has a wagon of his own where provisions can be placed he's um he's doing just fine because most people in this time if, if you have a horse, that's good enough, but if you have your own wagon um, what, that you could put provisions on, you are of high-end society. So, these, um, what do you call it, the, for the Royal Navy sailors um, whom have entered the w- Williamsburg Powder Magazine and are loading the 15 half-barrels of powder, what is their intent, folks? Well, the intent is to place all of it onto the HMS uh, Magdalene, which is a British cargo ship that was uh, currently docked at the James River. However, um, the townspeople in Williamsburg uh, got a hold of what was taking place. So the local citizenry and militia uh, respond, and dispatch riders are sent... um, in different locations uh, west of Williamsburg, what we now might think of as uh, Richmond, uh, Charlottesville, um, even north as well of uh, Williamsburg, but they are being sent in different locations so that they can get the word out that hey, look, uh, our um, the gunpowder of the, the state's gunpowder is being seized and it's being seized without our consent. So. The local citizenry, including the militia, are joined by city councilmen, being Williamsburg's uh, city councilmen. They all demand that the gunpowder be returned. It's not so much they want the gunpowder returned, but they are saying that it's the colony's property. The gunpowder is on our property. We never gave the crown direct consent to tell his men below him, being these Royal Navy sailors, along with Governor Dunmore, any permission whatsoever to remove the gunpowder. So, Lord Dunmore's defense is that is the following. He says that the gunpowder was being removed due to a rumored slave uprising. This wasn't made up, folks. I mean, this is what Governor Dunmore said. So, the city councilmen, the local citizenry, and the um, and the militia—they all took his word, so they dispersed, and uh, without any further unrest. So we would think, okay, everything's resolved, you know, false alarm. Well, two days later, on April twenty-second, a second crowd emerged, demanding that the gunpowder be uh, returned. Same response, same explanation that uh, that the gunpowder is the colony's property and not the crown's. Well, patriot leaders got um, confronted this crowd and basically told them that um, that you need to disperse. If you don't disperse, there will be consequences. This crowd was very intent on wanting to um, break and enter into Governor Dunmore's home. To express their displeasure. Well, I tell you, you know, emotions are, are raw. Emotions are powerful. But there are, But when it comes to emotions, there has to be a system of checks and balances as to how far you can go with expressing your emotions. Uh, didn't we, wasn't that lesson, didn't John Adams try to teach that lesson uh, in, in the aftermath of the Boston Massacre from five years earlier with the, with the trials? I believe John Adams said that uh, no matter how passionate you feel about something, emotions cannot override facts. Facts are stubborn elements. They can't be uh, reversed. At the end of the day, you are entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. John Adams didn't say that last part, but um, but the late Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a U.S. Senator from New York, often said that um, one is entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. So, in other words, you may not like the outcome of a decision that the jury made, but you're not entitled to your own facts. In other words, you have to go by the facts that were um, presented, and you, you may not have to like everything, but facts are facts. So, Yes, here we are in uh, April twenty second, 1775, and a second crowd is trying to do something that the first crowd didn't do two days before, and thank heavens we do have some patriot leaders who are uh, smart enough to uh, realize that, hey, look, we understand how you feel, but there is a boundary on what you can and cannot do. You can express your displeasure, but breaking into the governor's palace is not going to solve the problem. Now, let's go now to April 29th to May 2nd of 1775. Militia units are mobilizing in um, places north of Williamsburg. Um, in Fredericksburg, there there were about 700 militiamen who mobilized in that city on April the 29th. 700, folks. That's a huge number. Um That could be of concern right there if you have 700 militiamen marching all the way from Fredericksburg to Williamsburg. Then you have um, a militia unit um, that assembles in Hanover County, where Patrick Henry hailed from. Now, did both militia units come to Williamsburg? Yes and no. The militia from Fredericksburg did not march. How come they didn't march? They decided to send a rider south to Williamsburg to obtain intelligence from higher sources within the greater Williamsburg community. And whom do you think those uh, greater sources were whom advised this rider not to send militia forces, regardless of their number, from Fredericksburg down to Williamsburg? How about men like Peyton Randolph and George Washington, Peyton Randolph, he, we have to remember, even in 1775, even Mr. Peyton Randolph himself is a moderate. Yes, there are things that even Mr. Randolph does not like that Parliament has done, but he would be a great example of someone who would have fallen into that um, Olive Branch petition that was um, crafted by uh, John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, uh, come uh seventeen seventy six the olive branch petition was really a last ditch effort to um to help um resolve outstanding um differences between the crown and her subjects with the hopes that uh, compromises and reconciliation could be made uh sadly Peyton Randolph dies in the summer of seventeen seventy five he was uh, the president of the Continental Congress. Uh, and um, whom, whom do you all think uh, took his place? A fellow Massachusetts man named Mr. John Hancock. So let's just keep in mind that had Peyton Randolph not died, the largest signature on the Declaration of Independence would have been from a Virginian being none other than Mr. Peyton Randolph. But hey, Mr. John Hancock was a good man. And his his large signature would have had just would have held the same value as that of as it had been of uh, Peyton Randolph. So yes, Peyton Randolph and uh, George Washington are the two that um, that get the credit for helping diffuse the situation by telling the rider who came from Fredericksburg not to um, not to um, encourage these. Um, this 700-band militiamen from uh, advancing on to uh, Williamsburg. But as for um, the militia unit um, that um, was, I guess you could say, sponsored by Mr. Patrick Henry, they marched. But they only got 15 miles to the Capitol on May 3rd. So what stops them? A fellow um, member to the House of Burgesses named Carter Braxton whom would go on to be a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He prevented Patrick Henry and militia forces from entering the city of Williamsburg. He went about brokering a deal for payment restitution of the stolen gunpowder, being 330 pounds worth of stolen gunpowder, which is in the equivalent of uh, today's modern um modern um, times, in terms of money, that comes out to $431.14. So, had it not been for Carter Braxton, this uh, situation would have escalated so badly to where it would have resulted in violence, we might have seen our own version of a Boston Massacre. So, yes, was Patrick Henry... An ardent patriot. Of course, he's an ardent patriot. I mean, you know, shoot, St. John's um, Episcopal Church in Richmond. He was inspired by Cato. What did Cato say? I know, I know not. I know not what course others shall take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Patrick Henry was inspired by Cato, and that's what. Um, That was part of the uh, eloquent speech that he gave in March of 1775 at St. John's um, Episcopal Church, uh, nearly 247 years ago, to say the least. Now, uh, what document did Jack Jewett, uh, along with his uh, father, sign come spring of 1779? Was it a a national document or a state document? document or really uh, within the state of virginia uh, it was within the state of virginia it was the uh, albemarle declaration which consisted of over 200 other men's signatures from albemarle county the document advised king george the Third, including all future english monarchs the allegiance was now simply to virginia so basically in other words This document advised all men whom signed it to sever their ties, rather I should say, to King George III, including all future English monarchs, that their allegiance was not only just to America, but to Virginia. If you didn't sign it, I think it's fair to say that you were no longer welcomed. You were up a creek. What act did Virginia's legislature, a.k.a. the General Assembly, pass into law come May of 1779? This is an important one, folks, because this will dictate a lot of other uh, podcasts in this uh, book series. In May of 1779, the General um, Assembly passed legislation that was pretty much based upon the following title. Removal of the seat of government from Williamsburg to Richmond. I could tell you this much, folks, when Williamsburg uh, was no longer the capital... Williamsburg lost its eloquence, it lost its uh, lustre, elegance. Everything went to Richmond. Williamsburg might as well have been considered a ghost town. You know, think about it when when the House of Burgesses convened in Williamsburg, Williamsburg's population doubled in some instances tripled. They, historians know Williamsburg's population for the most part was about fifteen hundred. But during the time uh, that the gen, that the House of Burgesses convened. That population was anywhere from 3,000 and just as close as, say, 4,500. So this is a huge void. So I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, why did Williamsburg, why did the capital get relocated to Richmond, which is still the current capital today? Uh, The General Assembly believed Richmond was more safe and provided better central access, considering it had been a tobacco inspection station dating back to 1730. Richmond was a port city. Richmond had a better way, or I should say means of transporting goods, due to the fact that it, uh, that the water was uh, deeper. And um, Richmond is located at the Fall Line. This is the line that separates the Piedmont and the Atlantic Coastal Plain regions of Virginia, now I do know that uh, Richmond's about 44 miles west of Williamsburg, but of course I don't know if it was 44 miles west of Williamsburg in 1779. Given that we don't that back then we didn't have the same kinds of roads like we do today, you know there was no US 60, there was no Interstate 64, so obviously it would have taken much longer to have gotten from Richmond to Williamsburg, vice versa, in 18th century times. But uh William but uh Richmond uh becomes a uh, settlement in seventeen thirty seven and would be officially incorporated as a town come seventeen forty two. Richmond, folks, was founded by Mr. William Byrd II, who was a member of Virginia's governor's council from seventeen oh nine until his death in seventeen forty four. You know, when you think of the Byrd family, think of the Byrds, Custises, Lees, Carters, Randolph's. Powerful families, folks, and Carter's, you know, powerful families whom owned land. And because they owned land, they also had um, powerful roles in Virginia's um, House of Burgesses and just the greater communities themselves of the Tidewater aristocracy where all the old money lied. Well, we're just about here at the end of this uh, podcast segment, but uh, does anybody want to know where the, the General Assembly first met in Richmond? Well, I can tell you this much, there was no state capitol. There was no state capitol building on site. The legislature met in an old warehouse. Well, you got to start somewhere, but hopefully somewhere down the road, a capital, a modernized building will be built to make the legislators... Feel a little bit more welcomed and less crammed for space. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and I think it's fair to say that we now um, have a better understanding of um, of what this greater conflict now lies in store for Virginia. We know we've learned about the Gunpowder Incident and how that was um, how that was Virginia's version of what had taken the day taken place the day before. Uh, 600 miles to the north in Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, where the first shots heard round the world were fired, but is it fair to say that the gunpowder incident in Virginia was its own version of Lexington and Concord? Yes, to a degree. No shots were fired, but the tension was high to where shots could have been fired, but thank heavens we had patriot leaders like Patrick Henry, George Washington, and Mr. Carter Braxton um or Peyton Randolph, I should say Peyton Randolph, George Washington, and Mr. Carter Braxton, who uh helped diffuse situations that um were like the equivalent of tinderboxes. Well, when I'm on the air again next, we're gonna um we're gonna go into talking about seventeen eighty and we will uh find out where young Jack Jewett is in the year seventeen eighty. Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air again soon. And uh, thank you to all of you, my fellow 101 podcast listeners. You guys do a great job. Continue to keep the word, continue to get the word out uh, for those whom are interested in wanting to uh, come to Anchor, not only to listen to the podcast, but become uh, potential podcasters themselves. Uh, Take care for now and have a great evening and stay safe wherever you all may live.